What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's one of the questions Christians often ask. What does it look like to walk in the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit or to live according to the Spirit? There's one place in the Bible that really zeroes in on this to tell us how. And that place is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. You can turn to Galatians 5, 13 through 26 as we're going to be beginning a series on, on the fruit of the Spirit and what it means to keep in step with Him. You know, one of the challenges every Christian faces, every Christian, whether you grew up in a Christian home, whether you uh, went to a good church with loving parents who taught you all of the all of these truths from the Bible, or, or if you uh, grew up in a home that had none of those things, and you didn't come to Christ until you were an adult, never graced the doors of a church, never opened the Bible until you were out of the house. Both of those people grew up in the church, grew up out of the church. They come with certain ideas about what it means to live the Christian life. And what I mean is that they have their own definitions of things like patience or of forgiveness or of kindness and especially of love. And some may be closer to the mark, especially if you did grow up in a Christian home, and some might be far off, but we all bring assumptions and differing definitions with us when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, when you become a Christian, you come with Baggage, and that baggage needs to be sorted out. It's unavoidable that you bring certain ideas from the world with you. We grow up in the world, we breathe it, and there, there are things that we have learned that we have to unlearn. This is why it's never enough just to look at Scripture and say, well, the Bible says I need to be patient, so I guess I'll start being patient. Now, that's not bad, certainly, but it certainly is not enough either. Because unless we also have a biblical definition of what patience is, until that's dealt with, the best we can offer is a worldly kind of worship. If you come with a worldly definition of patience, what more can you have than what is worldly? Right? Oftentimes we think of patience, we think, well... I'll speak for myself. When I was a young believer, I read in the Bible, we have to be patient, and so I said, I've got to be patient. Well, I guess that means that I could wait an extra five minutes for something that I want right now. But then you read in the Bible about patience, and it says it's long-suffering, and it doesn't end. Two very different definitions of patience. And so we, as Christians, have to put off those old understandings and develop new ones, which is what we're commanded to do in Romans 12 too, right? Do not be conformed to the world which you were and are at risk of, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, right? There's a battle for your thoughts, for your definitions, and for your affections. And the way you win, and the way you overcome, and the way you strive after God is by walking in step with the Spirit. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at just that from Galatians 5, 13 through 26. What does it mean and what does it look like and how do I do it? How do I walk in the Spirit? We're going to give particular attention to the fruit of the Spirit 
But how do I walk with the Spirit? And the reason we're starting in verse 13 and going on to verse 26 instead of just verses 22 and 23, is because if 22 and 23 are the fruit of the Spirit, then the rest of the passage is the climate in which the tree grows. So Galatians 5, 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would Help us this morning to see what it means to walk with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with your Spirit. Lord, we have so many questions about this. I pray that this morning would be the beginning of making those questions clear. What does it mean to be a person indwelled by the Spirit of God? Help us to see this in your Word. And Lord, not just to know it, Lord, I, I pray that nobody in this room would go home and say, well, now I'm glad I know more about, about this, but that they would go home and say, I need to walk in the Spirit. Lord, I, Adam in the garden when he sinned, we can learn so much about it. But Lord, I pray that then we wouldn't, knowing so much, go home and do what Adam did. And I pray that our knowledge of Your Spirit and Your work in us would lead us to holiness and to walking more closely with You that we really would keep in step with Your Spirit. Thank You, God. I pray that You would help me to preach and help us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's great concern for every believer has more to do 
with what they are than what they do. In fact, for anything that we do to be acceptable and to be pleasing to God, it must be done with right motives and from the heart. Right? God doesn't love a giver. God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want service. He wants joyful service. He tells the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy, because you did not serve with rejoicing, I have rejected your service. So God just doesn't want your hands. He wants your hearts. He wants to be your delight and your highest affection. And so what you are and how you think of God is far more important than what you do. Now, this is not how we naturally think. It just isn't. Very often when we consider greatness in the kingdom of God, we think of effort or achievement or even sacrifice. Right? That's the mark of a godly person. Right? You want to know how far along a person is in the faith? How much have they, have they accomplished for Christ? What great works have they done? How many books? How many sermons? How many converts do they have? How, how unconquerable is their faith? What have they given up? What have they suffered? Now, none of those things are bad things. In fact, they're things we're told to strive to do. But there is a certain element under them that is necessary for any of those things to be pleasing to God. An element that if absent, it actually makes all Christian sacrifice and labor and ministry meaningless and even less than worthless. And that singular element on which these actions hinge is love. Because though it, it's the first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, really it encompasses them all. Love is the sum of the Christian life. In fact, it's, it's amazing how similar this passage is to 1 Corinthians 13. And if you ever wondered the premium that God places on love, just let me read to you the first three verses of that chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Zero. There is no gain or anything of any value if it is done for Christ apart from love. So if you want to know what matters to God, it's not a big ministry. It's not great sacrifice. It's not powerful faith or a lot of knowledge. It's none of those things on their own. But for any of them to be pleasing to God, they must be done and motivated by love. Anything less than that is hypocrisy. And you say, well, what if I don't feel like it? Well, what if I don't feel like coming to church in the morning, but I do? Does that make me a hypocrite? Well, it might. If it doesn't 
trouble you at all that you really don't want to be here and you're only here because you have to be and you don't ever really ever want to be at church and you find the Lord a burden to you, then yes, you probably are a hypocrite if you find the yoke of the Lord burdensome. But if it is as a, as a struggle for love's sake, and you come and your coldness bothers you, well, come anyway and then repent of your hard heart and ask the Lord to soften it. Pray like Augustine did. Command what you will and will what you command. Grow in your love for the Lord. Because love is not an optional thing for the believer. The Christian life is built on love. I mean, consider just a few verses of its necessity. Just a few. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we're commanded to love one another. And our example is Christ. As I have loved you, love one another. We're to love, we're commanded to love in the same way that Christ has loved us. Or 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is non-negotiable for the Christian. And just look at what John says. If you do not love, you do not know God. You are not born of God. Right? Do you know what that means? That means if you cannot love, you have not been born again. And we're going to come back to this. But you see right here, no quality is so necessary for the Christian to demonstrate than love. If you don't have love, you don't have Christ. You have not been born again and are a stranger to God. Later in the same chapter, 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How do you feel about people in the church? People in your own family? Do you love them? Maybe you say, well, you know, Corey, they're really not that lovable. Well, then, do you love them because you love Christ and He is in them? Because He is. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson, he said, he said, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet how often we look at a brother or sister in Christ who has annoyed us or offended us and see them not as the temple of the living God, but as a pagan temple, a pagan idol to be smashed. If you cannot love even the weakest of believers who you can see, how can you love the glorious God whom you cannot see? 1 Peter 4.8 Above all. Right? So that's, a, that's high up. Right? Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Right? Above all. So over every other thing, keep loving each other. If not, you'll tear each other to pieces. Every single sin will be like a thorn in your uh, skin or, a, or a, a splash of water in your face. And maybe you can handle a few, but it won't be long before you start to snap. Love doesn't snap because it delights to overlook those offenses and small things that so easily irritate us. Love covers 
sin. Romans 12.10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do you make an effort to outdo each other in how much you can love one another? It's easy to get into a contest to outdo one another in how much we know or how much we do or how early we rise or how late up we stay. It's almost like a ranking system. We're trying to see where everyone fits without asking. I'm not going to ask, but we'll see who's the most spiritual of us. We try to fit ourselves into this. It's wrong. Have you ever done that? And it's wrong because it's unloving. But if your aim is to outdo one another in love, then your aim is not to set yourself above others or to see where you fit, but your only concern is going to be, how can I go down under them and lift them up? Outdo one another in loving one another. Or oh, there's Romans 13.8 or 1 John 3.18 or John 13.35 and so many other places. We are called to love. Christianity and love are inseparable. In fact, if, if you make it your aim to love biblically, to love others according to Scripture, you will walk in step with the Spirit. Because the Spirit is love and God is love. And if the Spirit is in us, we will love. He says the whole of the law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Every fruit, every virtue, every good deed, there's, there's only one soil in which it grows. And that soil is the love of God. God's love poured into our hearts. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is more important for the Christian than this. We all agree. We, we all agree. Love is a supreme thing. Love is the thing. And yet, ironically, if you were to ask a stranger on the street who doesn't know Christ at all, they say, what's the main thing? You know what they're going to tell you? Nothing is more important than love. Love is one of the most important ideas in the modern mind. No height is too high, no depth too deep, no distance too far if the journey is made for love, right? We have whole genres of film and book and song dedicated to this one word. Our culture loves love. And yet if you look closely, or maybe you don't have to look closely, and it's glaringly obvious, but you find that that definition of love is very different than the God who is love. And this is one part of the two great hindrances that we face when it comes to loving others. It's in our hearts and it's in our minds. We don't know the love of God. Our hearts are dull to it and we grow calloused and cold. I think of what he, he tells the church in Ephesus, you have forgotten your first love. And we've been duped by the world into believing all kinds of wrong ideas about what love is. Worldly love is not like God's love. And it's not like it at all. As, as if they were on the same scale and one was at the bottom and God's love is at the top. It's not like that. What the world calls love is so corrupt and so twisted that it cannot even compare. It's not in the same category. I mean, pardon the poor example, but... But imagine you were at a dog show and there were all kinds of dogs being brought out. Big dogs, small dogs, long-haired dogs, short-haired dogs. And they're all dogs. And then imagine someone, someone signed up and they bring out a cat. Well, the, the judge comes over and says, you can't put that cat in the show. It's a cat. And they say, no, it's a dog. 
And so why is it a dog? Well, I've named it dog. I called it dog. It's cat dog. <laughs> They're not going to let it compete because it's not a dog. And it doesn't matter what you call it. A cat is a cat, no matter the name that you give. It's a silly example, but you get the point. Calling worldly love, love, doesn't make it so. Right? Just like calling a dog, doesn't, uh, a cat a dog, doesn't make it a dog. And just like calling a man a woman, doesn't make him a woman. <laughs> the love the world manifests isn't love, no matter what they call it. And there are a few major distinctions. There are a few, maybe, maybe more than a few. But there are a few major differences between worldly love and Christian love that I want to point out because these are the differences where we're prone to get sucked into. These are the, the differences that are more likely to infect us and get a hold of us and in the process have our understanding of love distorted. So you have to identify and then disavow these worldly aspects of so-called love. And the first is that worldly love is emotion-driven. Now, I don't mean to say there's no emotion in love. There has to be. The heart has to be involved, right? The emotions were made good by God. But how many times have you heard or seen love portrayed as something that an individual has no control over whatsoever? They're almost a, a victim of love, right? They've been struck by Cupid's arrow and there's nothing they can do about it. And then just as quickly as they've fallen into love, as if it were some kind of trap or open pit, they can fall out of it again. They are at the whims and wills of, of this unknown, undefinable entity that exists entirely outside of themselves, that exerts enormous life-defining power on them, and they have no control over it whatsoever. You say it this way, love is the master, and you are the puppet, and there's nothing you can do about it. It controls you, and not the other way around. Well, I don't know what this is. I don't deny that there are feelings that you don't have control over, and there are varying levels of attraction, but none of those things are really love. I mean, I'm sure any marriage that's lasted for 50 or 60 years, they've fallen in and out of, out of this many times. <laughs> and the world would say, now oh, fell out of love, pity, nothing you could do about it. Wrong. Love is what keeps them together even though those affections ebb and flow. That doesn't mean you don't ignore those things. But that's not really love. And if it is, it's only a small portion of it, the feelings you have no control over. But the world views love as something you have no power over whatsoever in any way. And that feeling is all that there is. And second, the world views love as transactional. It's a transaction. You do this for me, I will do this for you. I enjoy how what you do makes me feel, and because I enjoy it, I'll do something for you. Love. I think it was Brendan uh, he was sharing with me about speaking to a young man about love and when he asked him for a definition that's what he told him I love my girlfriend because she does things for me that makes me feel good and appreciated and I do the same for her and so we love each other and the young man could not conceive of an alternative definition couldn't conceive of a love that wasn't conditioned on the other person 
Because love is a transaction. You give to me, I give to you, and so long as we keep this up without disappointing one another too terribly, we are in love. We can talk about a rocky foundation. It's going to dry up faster than a raindrop in the desert. <laughs> Related to this, the world's love is conditional. It's conditional. The world says you can receive love so long as you do things that deserve it. But love must be earned. You must merit it. If not from society, then at least from those who are nearest to you, from your children and from your spouse. And on the flip side of this, others must earn it from you. It's kept locked up in a treasury in the heart, and when people endear themselves to you in some certain way, you take the key, open up your treasury, and dispense a little bit of your love on them. And though there are conditions to worldly love, one of those conditions, and if there's anything that kind of infects the church's definition of love, this is probably it, but one of those conditions is unconditional acceptance. One of the conditions of worldly love is unconditional acceptance, and, and everyone suffers from this. Worldly love never warns, never criticizes, never corrects. It only can affirm. And as soon as it stops affirming, it's no longer considered love. But then is Jesus unloving when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away? And is Jesus being unloving when he says to the people, unless you repent, you will likewise perish? No, a love that does not care to correct and steer a person out of danger, it's only a manifestation of love for self. It's a selfish love, a selfish kind of self-preservation that's more concerned with being in somebody else's good graces than actually doing good to them. I want you to think well of me and I'm willing to let you perish so that you'll think well of me. Right, if you're driving towards a bridge that's collapsed and there's a 300-foot gorge uh, below it, right, and I'm talking to you on the phone, and, and I know where you're going, and I know that the bridge is out, is the loving thing to do to tell you to stop or to affirm you? Right? Well, you like driving on that road. I know you like it. So you go as fast and you go as far as you can, and I'll support you all the way to the bottom. It's not love, is it? Love would be pleading with the person to stop even if it meant they would be cross with you. Because love gives and accepts criticism. I'm not constant, right? Not nagging or belittling. But there is a kind of criticism, a kind of concern that love offers and love accepts. And lastly, all worldly love is godless. And what I mean is that God is not the source or the example. And if you maybe you've noticed some confusion and even contradictions in what I've said about worldly love, that's because it is confusing and contradictory. Because there is there is no fixed definition of what love actually is. Everyone everyone loves as they see fit and demands a love that cannot be Defined. That's why people are so disappointed all the time because they're striving after something. They have a great ideal and they have no idea what it actually even is. The most significant difference, and this is the biggest one under them all, is that worldly love 
must be drawn out. If you want a singular definition of what is worldly love, worldly love must be drawn out of a person by their own loveliness. In order to be loved, you must be lovable. At least to somebody. In order to love, you must have qualities about you that other people find attractive. And the source of your love and all of its motivation is external. So love is drawn out of you by others and others draw love out of you. Others will love you if you're lovable. You will love others if they are lovable. God is not like that. He didn't look down at the earth and say, well, look at all those beautiful Israelites and, and look at those lovely apostles and wow, Paul is something else, isn't he? I think I'll fix my love on them. That's not how it worked. Abraham and Israel and the apostles and you. No one has ever drawn love out of God by their own attractiveness. So why does God love them? Because God is love. And because He is love, it flows from Him naturally. Love pours out of God because He overflows with it. When Israel asks Him, why have you set your affection on us? He tells them, well, you can be sure it's not because of you. He tells them, I have loved you because I have loved you. In the New Covenant, He pours out His love on His people in salvation. And He tells them, Ezekiel 36, it is not for your sake that I am doing this. He doesn't love us because of us. He loves us simply because God loves. God has decided to pour, to aim His affections, and they're real affections, but He is pouring them out on His people. And it flows from Him. Not like water in a well that has to be drawn out with great effort, right, deep within Him, and it's content to remain there unless we go and act upon it and, and pull up the bucket. It's not like that. God's love is like water from a mountain spring. It's in its very nature to flow. And were it dammed up, it would either burst the dam or find some other release. But the one thing it cannot be is stopped and contained. And so all of the love that ha God has for us, it originates in Him and overflows onto us. It comes from Him like water from an endless fountain. It flows into His people. It fills us and then overflows again. And this is the foundation of walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. God's love working in us. And that's what you see in this passage. Love inclines one to gentleness. It inclines one to patience. It creates joy. Love restrains passions and violence and temper and replaces them with kindness and moderation and calmness. Love covers sin. Love compels people to be forgiving. It acts as a, as a filter and as a check in every thought and action and word first must pass the test. Does it agree with love? Because love in the heart, if love is in the heart, it will be growing and all other virtues will come into place and all other vices will be being suffocated. Actions without love are hypocritical. Ministry without love is hypocrisy. It's like a fire with no heat. Or as Jonathan Edwards said, he said to conceive of a Christian without love, 
A Christian who is envious or malicious or cold and hard-hearted, it is the greatest absurdity and contradiction. It is, as, it is as if one should speak of dark brightness or false truth. And so not only should Christians walk in love. You may be hearing me and you may be thinking, yes, I need to love more. I need to, I need to do this more. Well, it's not only that you should walk in love, Christians must walk in love or else Christianity becomes suspect and very well may be false. It's like the faith of Demas or even Judas. Titus 1.16, it says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And you say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying that we have to love in order to be saved? Say, so I have to love in order to be saved? I thought that justification was by faith alone. Well, that is absolutely true. Justification is by faith alone and it's not to be trifled with. But what does that faith accomplish? Only salvation? Or does it do more than that? What does faith necessarily do? And even under that, what makes you a Christian in the first place? And faith without works, James tells us, is dead. In Galatians 5.6, it says, Faith works by love. Faith works. <laughs> Saving faith does something. It's not idle and it's not impotent. It, it's not weak. It works in the individual who has it. And the works that proceed from faith in no way take away from justification by faith alone. And think of it this way. If you're going to be a new parent, as many of you soon will be, and have a daughter or son you're going to be bringing them into your home. And guess what? Your home will necessarily change on account of the child. In fact, things will never be the same. But the child, listen, the child is not, uh, the child is the cause of the change, not the other way around. Right? You, you didn't go home and set up the nursery and all of a sudden you're pregnant. It doesn't work that way. The child is coming, so it changes the house. And so real justification by faith alone leads to or creates that faith working in you creates real action and real change. I mean, even if you change nothing, when the child comes, there's going to be change. It will make the change. Change in what you do and change in how you think and, and even uh, faith changes what you are at a constituent level. And that faith and that change is marked by love. And, and so the reason why love is so crucial and so characteristic and so indicative and essential and non-negotiable for saving faith and genuine Christianity is because Christian love does not have its origin in the Christian. Romans 5, it says, it's God's love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. So what happens when you become a Christian? The Spirit of God dwells in you. And if the Spirit of the God who is love is in you, if the Spirit of the One who is the source and wellspring of all love takes up residence in your heart, 
Guess what? Love is going to come out. Love is going to come out inevitably. And so the reason a Christian walks in love is not in the final analysis because they do side to, they decide to, to work up love in them. God, by His Spirit, fills up believers so that His love is working through them, overflowing onto others. And if the Spirit, the wellspring of all love is in you, you ever, have, you ever turn a hose on? You turn a hose on and then you take the hose and then you're away from the hand and you've got no way to stop it from flowing. And it just is spraying everywhere and making a mess. Well, if you, if you were to take the hose that's spraying out this water and you put it in a bucket, guess what's going to happen? It's going to eventually fill up the bucket. If the hose is in the bucket with water flowing out of it, the bucket will be filled. Now, you can, you can turn it off, sure, but so long as the flowing hose is in the bucket, it will fill up, it will overflow. When the Spirit of God is in us, that's like the hose, but it's not pouring out water, it's pouring out love, and it fills us up, and eventually it overflows unavoidably for the Christian. This is why we walk in love. But if love is not present, if love is not present in a person's life, no matter how much you claim to be a Christian, if there is no love, there is no spirit, and there is no life, and there is no Christ, and there is no salvation. It's like a fruit tree that Christians are compared to over and over again in Scripture. Listen, an apple tree... We have an apple tree in our backyard. It doesn't produce apples, maybe, maybe one or two, but it's an apple tree. But it, the tree doesn't grunt and groan and contort itself and work against its nature to produce apples. It produces apples naturally because it's in its nature to make apples. Now, of course, an apple tree left in the wilderness and unwatered and untended and uncared for, it's not going to have the same fruitfulness as one that's in an orchard that's being tended and fertilized and nurtured. It's just like a believer who has bad theology or bad teaching or is in a church that doesn't feed them well or any many other different things. They're not going to bear as much fruit or have that fruit be appeasing, but they'll still grow apples. I mean, if you go out into the woods and you see this tree, you think it kind of looks like an apple tree. You take a look at the tree. How many apples do you have to find before you know it's an apple tree. You only have to find one apple on the tree to know that it's an apple tree. But when a Christian is a Christian, they have a new nature that produces good fruit. Jesus says a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And the source of that fruit is the Spirit of God at work in you. Now in John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. You say, what's that mean? It means that just like you were born once and you came into life once, it has to happen again. You need to be made alive spiritually. It's like in Ephesians. It says you were dead, but God has made you alive. Or, or just like in Genesis, God breathes breath, which is the same Hebrew word for spirit. He breathes it into the lump of clay and it becomes alive. In the same way, so He breathes His Spirit into everyone who believes and they are made alive. In theology, this is, this is called regeneration. It's what it means to be born again. He puts His Spirit within you. Ezekiel 36, 
27, I will put my spirit within you. God does something to you and changes who you are. Ezekiel 36 also says, God takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Ephesians, you were dead, now you are alive. In John's Gospel, you were blind and now you see. You see the kingdom of God where before you couldn't see it or care about it at all. Now this means that the essence of a Christian and your being and your nature is different from that of a non-Christian. It is. Christians are different. And if you could penetrate to the soul and take a, a sample from a believer, you would find a kind of love that simply is not present in someone who does not believe. And none of this is on account of you. All of it is on account of God so that all boasting is excluded. <coughs> and you say, well, maybe this is, this is only for some Christians. Is this true for all, all believers? Is there a small group of Christians who really love and then there's, you know, kind of the rest of everybody else who just kind of goes about their own way? Well, that's impossible. Because this has to do with what it means to be a Christian at the most basic level. The Holy Spirit always brings the love of God with Him into every believer. If you are a Christian, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And how can the Spirit of God who is love come into you and you not love? And where this love is... Graces and fruits will be growing. So it's true that all virtue that comes from saving faith and that which distinguishes true Christians from others is summarized in the love of God in them. One of the changes that this brings is love for God. And we're going to look at loving one another and most of the other fruits and, and how they flow from God's love to us and examples of Christ. But love is directed toward God. And one of the first changes the Spirit brings when He comes in, the first manifestation of love, love for the Father. Changes the inclinations of the heart. A heart that once was hostile to God and hating God and opposed to Him. The heart that Scripture tells us every man and woman and child from Adam is born with. Now it is turned to Him in love. It is something that is simply not present in fallen human beings. In their nature, there is nothing that would make them to worship God, but love inclines you to just this. This is why you enjoy being at church on Sunday mornings, if you do enjoy it, while so many others would see it only as a burden. But when you love someone, and when that love has only been in enhanced and increased by their generosity and their kindness towards you, no length seems too great to go for them and no adoration too large to give. I mean, if anything, we who love the Lord feel our love is much too small. But a Christian, born again, filled with the Spirit, saved, they love the God who saved them. And this shows up not only in corporate worship, right? We want to be there. We want to worship together and sing together. It shows up in private worship as well. I mean, imagine if a man talked all the time about how much he loved his wife, how wonderful she was, but he never spoke with her. He never learned anything about her. So that even after 10 years, he, he couldn't be bothered to know her favorite meal or her favorite flower, or even her favorite color. Would you believe him when he says he loves his wife? Or if all the kindness that he showed towards her was motivated by a sense of, of nothing but, but duty, not actual love. I'm reminded uh, 
of an example John Piper gives of uh, giving roses to his wife. He said, he said, imagine it was my wife's, my wife and our anniversary, and I, I come to the door, and I have a dozen roses in my hand, and I knock on the door, and my wife opens the door, and I said, here, a dozen roses for you. And she says, oh, thank you, John. Why, why did you give these to me? And imagine I looked at her and said, because it was my duty. <laughs> Is she going to accept those roses and love those roses? He says, she's going to make me eat those roses. <laughs> but imagine I give the roses to her and I say, these are for you because I love you. You are so important to me in my life. I can't imagine being without you. And I want to show my affection towards you with these roses. The action looks the same. There's a huge difference between the two. But if somebody only did things for their wife out of duty and no sense of love, if they say they love their wife, would you take them seriously? They didn't know her at all. Of course you wouldn't take them seriously. Now, he may think he loves his wife, but he's the only one who thinks it, not even her. And if a person says they love God, they cannot be bothered to study His Word, to know Him, to know what pleases Him, and they cannot pray. It's a burden to talk to Him. And everything religious they manage to make themselves do, they do it begrudgingly or with resentment or they do it because somebody else makes them go. Even if that person is convinced that they love God, everyone who knows them ought to know it isn't true. Real love for God does not find God burdensome. Love for God does not view His Word with suspicion. If we love someone, we're more apt to believe them and trust what they say. You want to believe those that you love. I mean, it's probably the saddest example of this. Have you ever seen in a courtroom and, and there is a defendant and his mother's there? And even though the man's guilt is obvious to everyone, to the jury, to the judge, the casual observer, the mother cannot bring herself to believe that the child's committed this kind of a crime. She's, she's beside herself. She refuses to believe it. She says, not my boy. That's, that may be misguided, but that is a manifestation of the woman's love for her son. She wants to believe the one she loves. Well, in our case, we serve and love a God who cannot lie. And all His words are true. And we want to believe Him. And we can believe Him because He speaks the truth. And those who love God, they believe His Word. They take it as a given. They, they don't dispute with God or argue with God. They don't open up the book and read and say, I don't know about this, or not for me. Maybe this is for others. Love for God inclines one to love His Word. Because John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You cannot love God if you do not love His Word. And lastly, one of the things that love does is it recognizes God's authority to govern. 
Love recognizes God's right. Love for God recognizes God's right to tell me what to do. If you love your employer, I mean, really love your employer, is it a burden to do what they ask? And if they love you, does that, does that not make the burden lighter? I imagine you're, you're, you're struggling with, uh, you're carrying something, it's heavy, you're struggling, and the, uh, your employer rushes over, takes hold of it, and helps you, not out of concern for profit or impatience, but a genuine concern for you. He comes to your aid. Doesn't that make it easier to work for the person? Don't you eventually come to the point and you say, I delight to do this work? The labor becomes sweet because of your love for your employer? Or if a child loves a parent, don't they delight to do what the parent asks of them? Love melts the arrogance of our fallen nature so that we not only acknowledge God's right over us, but we delight when He exercises His authority. His ways are right and righteous, and so we joyfully and not begrudgingly submit to Him. And nowhere is this love more clearly manifest than in the life of Jesus Christ, who always did the will of the Father. It's his, he said, it is my food to do the will of my Father. It's what sustains me doing the will of the Father. But for us, living for ourselves seems to come by instinct. We cannot imagine any other course for ourselves than the one we chart out. We so naturally assert our own sovereignty and our own dominion and our own power to govern ourselves. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ did nothing apart from his Father's will. No sacrifice he made was too great because of love. No ministry was too difficult because of love. Love compelled him unselfishly in everything that he did. And if you want to know what God's love looks like, look at Christ. Now, you probably have some questions and some loose ends, and we're going to look at the life of Christ, and we're going to answer what it means to love and, and how to love in the coming weeks. We'll tie those loose ends up, Lord willing. But, but right now, as we close, I want to ask you a question. Right now, do you have any genuine love for the Lord God? Do you love Him? Do you delight in His Word? Do you find joy in submitting to His ways? Do you cherish the time that you can spend with Him in prayer and in His Word? Or can you not remember the last time you opened your Bible or prayed? God is far from your affections. You don't seek to understand Him. You don't care to know His will. And, and what you do know, it just seems like a yoke of iron on your neck. It wearies you out and you have no delight in Christ. If that's you, then you don't know Him. If you did, you would love Him. If you knew Him, you would love Him according to His Word and you would be able to say, His burden is light and His yoke is easy. This is true for everyone who knows Christ because the Spirit of God, when He comes in, He picks up that yoke and carries it along. It's not a difficult thing to serve someone, to follow someone, 
that you love. It's not a difficult thing to adore someone that you love. If you love them, nothing is more natural than to show them your affection, to listen to their words, and to walk after them. Do you love the Lord God? Ask yourself honestly. If you're worried this morning, say, I don't know. I thought I was a Christian. I, I take a look at my heart. I've examined myself. I don't know where I stand. Then don't go home this morning without dealing with this. Come and talk to me, to one of the other elders at the church, to Thomas, Daniel, David. But speak to someone and get it settled. Don't, you don't want to go on playing the hypocrite. Ask yourself honestly, do I love the Lord God? Let's pray. Lord, you are the one who searches hearts and knows all things. Nobody, Lord, nobody before you, nobody before you, Lord, knows, but you know. You know the hearts of all people. If we are confused, you're not confused. And Lord, you have loved us. You have poured your spirit into your people. And I pray, God, that if anyone here does not know you, if anyone here does not love you, Lord, and we, we know that we do not love you as we ought, we know that we all could love you more. Many of us are concerned, even ashamed, of the love that we have for you. But there is some real love there. Lord, I'm praying for those who do not know you or love you at all and find all of your ways like a chain around their neck, Lord. I pray that you would show them and that they would be set free so that they could love you, really love you, and find your ways, Lord, the delight. Lord, there is more joy in your right hand than they would ever know. And I pray that you would show them and reveal it to them. Lord, I pray for all of your people who do love you, that you would help us to love you more, and that we would be a people who are walking in the Spirit. Lord, that we would be a people who are keeping in step with the Spirit and bearing much fruit of the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for the work that you do in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.